Hey guys, thank you so much for supporting the first episode of Crime Scene. It really means a lot to me and I hope that with the coming time, I'll figure out the tone for this show. Maybe it might sound a little different in this episode, so bear with me and let's get started. This podcast recounts true crime events that contain adult themes. The content may be graphic or explicit and as such may not be everyone's cup of tea. Viewer discretion is advised. Also, spoiler alert. A small town scene is bustling with activity right on the edge of sundown as a paper boy is heard shouting in the distance. A narrator comes in to set the scene, reading, World War II had ended only eight months earlier, and the town of Texarkana, population 40,000, which straddles the Texas-Arkansas border, was regearing for peace after four years of rationing, war bonds, and shortages. We see a young college-age couple exit a vehicle while the narrator talks about former soldiers entering university. We then cut to a wedding party with guests anxiously awaiting the newlywed couple's exit from the church. The bride and groom emerge, greeting their guests and being doused with celebratory rice. However, eerie music begins to play as we see a young couple interacting with a checkpoint worker at the Red River United States Army Depot. Multiple scenes are interspersed as the narrator talks about the economy, and a small theater is then seen surrounded by patrons as the voiceover recounts the date as Sunday, March 3rd, 1946. Quote, The beginning of a reign of terror for the people of Texarkana and surrounding areas of Arkansas and Texas, a terror so indelibly imprinted that today, 30 years later, people still speak of it fearfully. The incredible story that you're about to see is true, where it happened and how it happened. As he reads, we see a pair of unidentified feet exit a building and stroll down a sidewalk, never revealing the identity of the person, but noting only the names have been changed. Thus begins the story of 1976's The Town That Dreaded Sundown and the true story of the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. This is Crime Cine. On February 22, 1946, 25-year-old Jimmy Hollis and his 19-year-old girlfriend Mary Jane Leary parked on a hidden lover's lane after seeing a movie in Texarkana, Texas. And I'm going to pause for a second just to note that a 25-year-old dating a 19-year-old is not acceptable in any means. I don't care. It was 1946. Not acceptable. Anyways, back to the story. Around 11.55 that night, a man donning a white cloth mask similar to a pillowcase with eye holes appeared on Hollis's side of the car and shined a flashlight into it. Thinking it was a prank, Hollis insisted the man had the wrong person, to which the man responded, quote, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. The masked individual demanded both out of the driver's side window and Hollis was ordered to take his pants off. While he complied, the individual struck him twice in the head with his pistol. Larry said she thought he had been shot, but this was actually the sound of his skull fracturing. She searched for Hollis's wallet to show he had no money, assuming it was a robbery. She was then struck with a blunt object but ordered to run away. When she began to head towards a ditch, the attacker demanded she run up the road. The attacker then confronted her and knocked her down and sexually assaulted her with the barrel of his gun. She managed to get away, running a half mile on foot to a nearby house. The residents of the house awoke to her pleas for help and called the police. Meanwhile, Hollis regained consciousness and flagged down a passerby. 
30 minutes later, Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and three officers arrived at the crime scene, but the assailant was nowhere to be found. They were both hospitalized, Larry for a minor head wound and Hollis for multiple skull fractures. Both survived. A month later, on March 24th, 29-year-old Richard L. Griffin and his girlfriend of six weeks, 17-year-old Polly Ann Moore were found dead in Griffin's 1941 Oldsmobile sedan by a passing motorist on a lover's lane. Once again, not to make light of this situation, but if you're 29 years old, you should not be dating a 17-year-old. I don't care what anyone says, it's not acceptable. Griffin was found between the front seats on his knees with his head resting on his crossed hands with his pockets turned inside out. Moore was found sprawled face down in the back seat, but there was evidence to suggest she had been killed on a blanket outside of the car, then placed in the back seat. Griffin had been shot twice, and both had been shot once in the back of the head. They were all fully clothed. A 32 cartridge shell was found wrapped in a blanket, but nothing indicated either body was examined by a pathologist. After these murders, a citywide investigation was launched with Texas and Arkansas City Police, the Department of Public Safety, Miller and Cass County Sheriff's Departments, and the FBI all involved. Six days after the murder, a $500 reward was announced in relation to any new information regarding the case. Adjusted for inflation, this amount would equal $7,059.73 in 2020, just so you know. 15-year-old alto saxophone player Betty Jo Booker was finishing up her weekly gig with her band The Rhythm Mares at the VFW Club on April 13th. Around 1.30 in the morning, Booker's friend, 17-year-old Paul Martin, picked her up from her performance and was planning to drop her off at a slumber party. Five hours later, Martin's body was found by Mr. and Mrs. G.H. Weaver and their son, lying on its left side by the northern edge of North Park Road. He had been shot four times, once through the nose, once through the left fourth rib from behind, once in the right hand, and once through the back of the neck. Booker's body was not found until 11.30 a.m., two miles away from Martin's and hidden behind a tree. She was found on her back, fully clothed with her right hand in the pocket of her overcoat. She had been shot twice, once through the chest and once in the face. Martin's 1946 Ford Club Coupe was found three miles from Booker's body and one and a half miles away from its owners in Spring Lake Park with the keys still in the ignition. Police were unsure who was killed first, but Sheriff Presley and Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Trazazas, Lone Wolf Gonzalez, agreed that both had put up a fight. Police also determined that the same weapon had been used as the one in the first double murder, a 32 automatic Colt pistol. A reward exceeding $1,700 was accrued for information leading to anyone responsible in the both murders. This amount would equal $24,003.07 in 2020. Rumors started to swirl about suspects, including one suggesting a local preacher had turned in his own son as a suspect in the Martin Booker murders. 37-year-old farmer and welder Virgil Starks and his wife Katie were relaxing at home on their 500-acre farm 10 miles northeast of Texarkana on May 3rd. Katie was lying in bed when she heard something from the backyard and requested the radio be turned down. Moments later, as Virgil read the latest edition of the Texarkana Gazette, two shots were fired into the back of his head from the closed double window three feet away. Katie, not realizing what had just happened, went into the living room to investigate and watched as Virgil stood, then slumped back into his chair. Seeing blood, she reached to lift his head, realizing that he was already dead. She reached for the phone, but was shot twice in the face from the same window. One bullet entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear as the other pierced her just below the lip, 
breaking her jaw and knocking out several teeth before lodging in her tongue. She sank to the floor but managed to rise again, running for a pistol in the living room. She heard the killer tear through a rusted screen wire on the back porch and knowing she'd most likely be killed, stumbled to the bedroom to leave a note. She ran to her sister and brother-in-law's house just across the way, but no one was home. She then proceeded to run 50 more yards to A.V. Prater's house, and as he answered the door, she managed to blurt out, Virgil's dead, before collapsing. She was transported to Michael Meager Hospital, where it was found that she had lost a large amount of blood, but had a normal heart rate and showed no signs of going into shock. As Katie recovered in the hospital, police and Texas Rangers investigated the crime scene, where three clues were found. A caliber of bullets, a flashlight found in the hedge underneath the window where the shooting took place, and various bloody prints around the house. The flashlight was sent to D.C. for further inspection by the FBI, but was not found to contain any fingerprints. A picture of the flashlight was the first spot-colored photograph ever featured in the Texarkana Gazette. Sheriff Davis concluded that the murder could not be directly linked to the other killings because the caliber used was a 22, not 32 like previously found. This was then furthered by other evidence, and by November of 1948, authorities no longer considered the crimes connected. Officers detained at least 12 suspects in the Starks murder, but only kept three for further questioning. The reward fund was increased to $7,025, $99,189.14 in 2020. Panic enveloped Texarkana as many feared further attacks by the killer, Curfews were set for businesses and once unlocked houses began taking extra precautions, including locking all doors, pulling down shades, blocking windows, and arming themselves. In fact, stores sold out of locks, guns, and ammunition, as well as other privacy essentials. Local businesses suffered and the city became a ghost town by sunset. One account of the town read as, quote, when driving up, officers had to turn on their sirens, stand in their headlights, and announce themselves to keep from being shot by a nervous homeowner. A bar owner actually shot a customer that was in search of beer on foot. Residents of the town made booby traps, installed lights, and some even temporarily resided in hotels or at relatives' houses. After three months with no further attacks, panic had mostly subsided, and one by one, Texas Rangers left Texarkana. However, this was not announced in case the assailant had plans for another attack. An unusual phenomenon of teenage sleuths emerged during the murder spree. Kids continued to park on lovers' lanes, many hoping to apprehend the killer themselves. One night, Chief Deputy Tillman Johnson was out on patrol with Arkansas State Trooper Charlie Boyd when they encountered a parked car. Johnson approached the car and, noticing it was a couple, stated his name and issue and said, quote, Aren't you scared to be parked out here at night? The girl replied, quote, you're the one that ought to be scared, mister. It's a good thing you told me who you are, revealing a 25 ACP pistol pointed at him. Captain Gonzalez eventually had to give a statement on May 12th, warning, quote, teenage sleuths against pursuing the assailant, warning, quote, it's a good way to get killed. The nickname the Phantom Killer was not used for the attacker until after the murders of Booker and Martin. It first appeared in the April 16th edition of the Texarkana Daily News, headline reading, quote, Phantom killer eludes officers as investigations of slayings pressed. The Texarkana Gazette followed suit with a small title on the April 17th paper reading, quote, Phantom Slayer Still at Large as Probe Continues. The Gazette's executive editor, J.Q. Mahaffey, recounted that managing editor Calvin Sutton had a flair for the dramatic and asked that they could not start referring to the killer as a phantom. Mahaffey replied, quote, 
Why not? If the SOB continues to elude capture, he certainly can be called a phantom. Hollis and Leary were the only victims that were able to give a description of the phantom, agreeing that he was around six feet tall and wearing a white mask with mouth and eye holes. However, they had conflicting accounts of the killer's skin tone. Hollis claimed it was a young, dark, tanned white man under the age of 30, but Larry claimed it was a light-skinned African-American man. It was not known whether or not the killer wore a mask during the following attacks, as Katie Starks, the only other survivor, never caught a glimpse of her attacker. The Phantom's MO was as follows. Attacking young couples in empty or private areas just outside the city limits using a 32 caliber gun, always on weekend late nights and usually three weeks apart. Dr. Anthony LaPala, a psychologist at the Federal Correctional Institution in Texarkana, believed the killer had planned to continue to make unexpected attacks like that of Virgil Stark. He also believed the killer to be between mid-30s and 50, motivated by a strong sex drive, possibly sadism, and most likely not someone who suffered from a split personality. He continued stating it was most likely not a veteran because if he had served in the armed forces for even a year, his, quote, maniacal tendencies would be apparent and likely reported. LaPala thought a person who would commit these crimes would be, quote, intelligent, clever, shrewd, and often not apprehended, and was not necessarily a resident of the area. And in a moment of by-the-book racism, LaPala concluded that he did not believe the killer was black because in his opinion, black criminals were, quote, not that clever. I'm disgusted. No suspects were apprehended in the Hollis and Larry case, but over 200 were questioned in the Griffin and Moore case. Suspects were taken into custody for bloody clothing, two of whom were released after satisfying explanations were given. A remaining suspect was held in Vernon, Texas for further investigation, but was later cleared of suspicion. A taxi driver became a major suspect in the Martin and Booker case when a cab was seen in the vicinity of the crime scene, but he was cleared as the investigation continued. Friends and several suspects were questioned by Bowie County authorities who worked in 24-hour shifts. Suspects ranging in gender and ethnicity within a hundred mile radius were brought in. On April 27, the man was arrested in Corpus Christi for trying to sell a saxophone to a music store. Booker's saxophone had not been found at the crime scene, so the front desk worker summoned the manager of the store. The 30-year-old fled the scene and was arrested two days later at a hotel after purchasing a 45 caliber revolver. No saxophone was found in his possession, but bloody clothing was found in his hotel room. By May 3rd, the man was cleared by Gonzalez, who stated, quote, We must get the right man or no man at all. Several people in the vicinity to the Starks crime scene were questioned, and 12 were detained, but 9 were soon released. The remaining 3 were kept for further questioning, but eventually released as well. 33-year-old Arkansas State Police Officer Max Tackett realized a car had been stolen on the night of one of the murders, and a previously stolen car had been found abandoned. On June 28, Tackett located the stolen car in a parking lot and arrested 21-year-old Peggy Sweeney when she returned to it. She claimed she had just gotten married, but her husband was in Atlanta, Texas, attempting to sell another stolen car. Her husband was later caught and identified as 24-year-old Yule Sweeney. Soon after his arrest, Sweeney made incriminating remarks about the crimes without being prompted. Peggy confessed to his crimes as the Phantom during her questioning and claimed he had killed Booker and Martin. Her story, however, changed over time, and authorities believe she had withheld facts due to a fear of her husband or incriminating herself. Police were able to verify some details of her story, but by law at the time in 1946, 
Peggy couldn't be forced to testify against her husband. Due to her reputation as an unreliable witness, she was not arrested for murder. Yule was, however, sent to prison for his history of car theft on circumstantial evidence. Some believe his sentence was effectively a plea bargain, but files do not indicate a formal agreement was reached. He agreed not to contest the habitual offender charge and tried to plead guilty even though the habitual offender case required trial by jury. Circumstantial evidence in Yule Sweeney's case includes the following. The car Peggy Sweeney was arrested for stealing was the one reported missing on the night of the Griffin Moore murders. When apprehended, Sweeney stated, quote, Please don't shoot me. Tacky replied, quote, I'm not going to shoot you for stealing cars. Sweeney then replied, quote, Mr. Don't play games with me. You want me for more than stealing cars. He also said the same thing when he suspected he'd get the electric chair. When a lawyer told Peggy that her husband was being held for murder, she exclaimed, quote, How did they find out? Peggy took officers near a spot where Paul Martin's body was found. She said she had walked into the woods there. The officers found woman's heel prints in that area. In the front pocket of the work shirt, slag was found, which matched samples found in Virgil Stark's welding shop. However, complications to the facts provided above are as follows. Yule's fingerprints didn't match any of the prints at the Booker Martin scene. Peggy recanted her confession. Yule never made a confession. And quote, unknown as either a sick prank or a true confession, an anonymous woman contacted family members of two of the victims, one in 1999 and another in 2000, apologizing for what her father had done. Yule Sweeney was not known to have ever had a daughter. Yule Sweeney remained the prime suspect of the Texarkana Moonlight Murders for years after he was released from prison in 1973. He died in a Dallas nursing home on September 15, 1994, at the age of 77. On November 5, 1948, 18-year-old University of Arkansas freshman H.B. Duty Tennyson was found dead at his home in Fayetteville. It was discovered that Tennyson had purchased cyanide of mercury two days prior to being found, stating he would use it as rat poison. A note found with his body read, quote, the opening to my box will be found in the following few lines. In a tube of paper is found, rolls on colors, and it is dry and sound. The head removes, the tail will turn, and inside is the sheet you yearn. Two bees mean a lot when they're together. These clues should lead you to it. Another note was found inside the fountain pen with the cap containing poison. It included clues to a combination lockbox inside of which was a viewmaster with rolls of film of Mexico and a stack of papers. Under the papers, a confession to the Texarkana killings was found, stating, quote, To whom it may concern, this is my last word to you fine people, and you are fine. I want to thank you for all the trouble that you have gone to, to send me to college and to bring me up. You have really been wonderful. My thanks to Ella Lee for letting me stay with her during my college career, and to Belva Joe, her daughter, for putting up with me the way she did. She had to know I know, but I fell in love with her about a week ago. If she was older, I would have asked her to marry me, but that would be impossible. Why did I take my own life? Well, when you committed two double murders, you would too. Yes, I did kill Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night, and killed Mr. Starks and tried to kill Mrs. Starks. You wouldn't have guessed it. I did it when Mother was either out or asleep, and no one saw me do it. For the guns, I disassembled them and discarded them in different places. When I am found, which has already been done, please give this typewriter to Craig, my brother. 
and tell him that I hope that his child is a boy. It will help him in his work. Everything can go wherever you think it will do best, except for the Viewmaster, which will go to Belva Joe. Please take my bankroll and give it to Daddy. I think it should go to him. And tell him I don't want the car now. Well, goodbye, everybody. See you sometime. If I make the grade, which will be hard for me to make. H.B. Tennyson. Tennyson had even created newspaper headlines about his death, including a sign that read, quote, Do not disturb, death in the making. And wrote his own epitaph, quote, Here lies H.B. Tennyson, born February 12, 1930, died October 2, 1948. He committed suicide for the happiness of his family. May he rest in peace. Amen. Tennyson had never been considered in the investigation of the Moonlight murders, and his fingerprints did not match those at the Brooklyn Martin crime scene. The bullets fired from rifles belonging to Tennyson didn't match either, and other notes later found by investigators contradicted his own statements. A friend of duties later came forward to state that they were together on the night of the Starks attack. Several other false confessions were also recorded, including statements from a German POW and even a hypnotized black man. Filmmaker Charles B. Pierce, a native of Texarkana, decided to base his cult film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, off of news stories about the murders that plagued his childhood. Principal photography for the film began June 21, 1976, and for four weeks in locations such as Scott, Arkansas, Shreveport, Louisiana, Garland City, Arkansas, and Texarkana. Nineteen locals were given starring roles in the film alongside several residents working as extras. The cast list was as follows. Ben Johnson played Captain J.D. Morales, based off of M.T. Lone Wolf Gonzalez. Andrew Prine played Deputy Norman Ramsey, based on Bowie County Sheriff Bill Presley. Don Wells played Helen Reed, based on Katie Starks. The director, Charles B. Pierce, played Patrolman A.C. Benson, known as Sparkplug, in the film. Bud Davis played the Phantom. Mike Hackworth played Sammy Fuller, based on Jimmy Hollis. Christine Ellsworth played Linda Mae Jenkins, based on Mary Jean Larry. Steve Lyons played Roy Allen, based on Paul Martin. And Cindy Butler played Peggy Loomis, based on Betty Jo Booker. Pierce asked Don Wells, famous for her role as Mary Ann in Gilligan's Island, on July 8th if she'd be interested in starring in the film. She arrived in Texarkana before noon the very next day. She stayed in town for less than a week and shot all of her scenes in her first two days in town. Wells was almost attacked by a random bulldog while filming the cornfield scene, but the crew managed to scare it away by shooting at it. And as far as I can tell, the bulldog was not injured. Go dogs. To prepare for her role as the character based on Katie Starks, Wells asked if she could meet with a real-life victim, but Starks refused. She never read her script, instead relying on director Pierce to coach her through it, stating, quote, Acting-wise, it's an extremely emotional role. I didn't want to pattern my interpretation after anything. I wanted to go on my own feelings. Andrew Prine, who played Deputy Norman Ramsey, wrote the last fifth of the film due to the lack of an ending. The last shot of the film with the boots at the movie theater was Pierce's wife's idea, alluding to the idea that the killer may still be out there, as no one has ever been charged with the murders. The poster art was painted with acrylics by then-unknown graphic illustrator Ralph McQuarrie, who went on to gain notoriety for his work on the original Star Wars trilogy, the original Battlestar Galactica series, 1982's E.T., and 1985's Cocoon, for which he won the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. The advertising department decided to place the phrase, quote, In 1946, this man killed five people. Today, he still lurks the streets of Texarkana, Arkansas. 
on the poster, but after city officials threatened to sue, Pierce tried to have the statement removed. The last part was censored and or removed in advertisements, but it remained on several posters. The Town That Dreaded Sundown was theatrically released in the United States by American International Pictures on December 24, 1976, and internationally in Sweden in 1977, West Germany in 1978, and the Philippines in 1979. It grossed $5 million at the box office and received mixed reviews upon its release. Vincent Camby of the New York Times even went as far to say, quote, A couple of professional actors, Ben Johnson and Andrew Prine, head the cast, but the film looks non-professional in every other aspect. Mark Milton Moore, brother of victim Polly Ann Moore, took Pierce to court in 1978 for $1.3 million for a privacy invasion, claiming his sister was depicted as, quote, a high school dropout and a woman with loose and low morals, when in fact none of such was true. The court denied his claim in 1979, but he filed again in 1980 to the Texas Supreme Court, but did not emerge victorious. Quote, the Sixth Court of Civil Appeals in Texarkana agreed again that the film's producers did not invade his privacy and that he was not entitled to any money. On March 15, 1978, teenager Gerald Gadremus shot and killed friend James Grunstra and claimed in court that he came up with a plan to be, quote, an outlaw like Jesse James while watching the town that dreaded sundown. Since 2003, the film has been shown at Spring Lake Park, the site of some of the crimes, near Halloween every year in Texarkana. A meta-sequel of the same name was released in 2014 by American Horror Story creator Ryan Murphy and Bloomhouse Productions founder Jason Bloom, creating a narrative where a copycat killer is inspired by the annual screening to commit similar crimes. Now, the original Town That Dreaded Sundown stands out from many slasher films of the time by adopting a documentary-style approach that paints Texarkana as an idyllic town plagued by a sex maniac. The film has its faults, with average acting, inaccurate costume design, and changes to the real story that are passed off as facts, i.e. the trombone replacing Booker's saxophone for a more gruesome kill. Most of this can be attributed to the $400,000 budget, yet even that doesn't hold it back from, in my opinion, its fantastic color grading and shot composition. It also takes time to reflect on some of the most likely preposterous parts of the initial investigation, including a not-confirmed moment of drag during an undercover stakeout that unexpectedly brings homoerotic subtext into an otherwise very straight film. That being said, I'd like to take this moment to let Jimmy Clem's Sergeant Mal Griffin know that asymmetrical breasts exist and we are not here to shame the people that have them. The title is one of my favorite titles in all of film history and the original poster is gorgeous. I actually saw the remake before the original, and it was fine. I don't recall much of it at the moment, but I thought the copycat killer storyline was a bit too reminiscent of Scream. In all truthfulness, the annual screening in Texarkana has been on my bucket list ever since I saw Chiller's documentary Killer Legends. While Metacritic rates the original a 52 out of 100 and Rotten Tomatoes has it at a 42%, I give it a 6 out of 10 spooks for the slow pacing, yet beautiful cinematography. James Mack Jimmy Hollis was released from the hospital a little over a week after his and Larry's attack, but was still recovering by mid-May. He eventually married and had seven children. He obtained a Bachelor's of Arts in History and a Master's of Science in Public Administration, eventually working for the U.S. government. He appeared in the 1971 television film They've Killed President Lincoln as Vice President Andrew Johnson. He eventually moved to Houston to work for NASA and died in his sleep at the age of 54. He is remembered for his sense of humor as well as his love of the outdoors. Mary Jane Larry lived in Hook, Texas at the time of her attack. She stated she frequently had nightmares about her attacker and feared being alone. 
In an interview in the May 10th edition of the Texarkana Gazette, Larry stated, quote, I would know his voice anywhere. It rings always in my ears. Why didn't he kill me too? He killed so many others. She returned to Texarkana to help police in identifying the phantom, but Texas Rangers questioned her story and caused her to cease her involvement after insisting she knew the attacker. Larry died of cancer in Billings, Montana in 1965 at the age of 38. Richard Lanier Griffin was born on August 31, 1916. He was a war veteran, recently discharged from the Seabees at the time of his attack. He had worked as a carpenter, painting and handling his own contracting. He was last seen alive around 10 p.m. on March 23rd with his sister Eleanor and her boyfriend. He was 29 years old at the time of his murder. Polly Ann Moore was born on November 10, 1928 and graduated from high school at the age of 16. She worked as a checker for the Red River Arsenal and had been dating Griffin for six weeks at the time of her attack. She was 17 years old when she was murdered. Paul James Martin was born on May 8, 1929 and was described as a quiet kid. He had been friends with Betty Jo Booker since they had attended kindergarten together. He was a member of Beach Street Baptist Church and had previously attended the Gulf Coast Military Academy in Mississippi. He was 16 at the time of his murder. Betty Jo Booker was born on June 5, 1930 and was raised in the congregation of Beach Street Baptist Church, just like Martin. She was a member of the Delta Beta Sigma sorority and was one of four officers in her high school band. Booker was also a member of the Rhythm Airs, who played proms and local events in Texarkana. They disbanded after her death. She was very popular and was very well liked in her community. She loved music and swimming and won many scholastic and artistic awards with dreams of becoming a medical technician. Her funeral, held hours after Martin's, was attended by hundreds. She was 15 years old when she was murdered. Walter Virgil Starks was born on April 3, 1909 and married his wife Katie on March 2, 1932. He worked as a progressive farmer and welder and offered his work to many neighboring farmers. He had no known enemies and was said to have an excellent reputation around town. He was 37 years old when he was murdered. Catherine Isla Katie Starks was born on September 25, 1909, and had lived in her modest farmhouse with husband Virgil for five years at the time of her attack. Katie and Virgil had gone to school together before getting married, having grown up on neighboring farms in Red Spring, Texas. She worked as an officer manager at American Optical and eventually remarried. She passed away at the age of 84 on July 3, 1994. She was buried next to Virgil, and after her second husband's death, he was buried next to her, so that she was surrounded by the two men she loved for eternity. On May 7, 1946, four days after the Starks attack, the body of a man was found on the Kansas City Southern Railway, 16 miles north of Texarkana. The body was lying face down near the tracks, and its left arm and leg had been severed by a passing freight train. The man was later identified as Earl Cliff McSpadden, stated to be a transient oil storage tank builder by his brother. McSpadden's death was highly disputed, though murder was further pointed to after a second examination was conducted. The coroner's initial jury verdict stated, quote, death at the hands of persons unknown, and that he, quote, was dead before being placed on the railway tracks. He also stated that he believed McSpadden had been dead two full hours before being placed on the train tracks because there was not enough blood around his wounds to have caused his death. Knife wounds along the body further proved his point, yet the sheriff still believed the death to be accidental. The coroner, however, maintained that Spadden had died of knife wounds. Because his murder remains unsolved, locals have speculated that McSpadden was either the Phantom's sixth victim or the Phantom himself, who chose to take his secret to the grave. All of this, however, is speculation. No one has ever been charged for the Texarkana Moonlight Murders of 1946, and the case remains unsolved to this day.
Thank you so much for listening to Crime Scene A. All of the information presented in this episode was gathered from Wikipedia, IMDb, as well as the chiller documentary Killer Legends, one of my favorites. The music you've heard throughout this episode was made by my friend Colby. I'll include his SoundCloud in the description. And I'd like to dedicate this episode to the victims of the Phantom Killer, as well as the authorities who worked around the clock to try and bring justice to Texarkana. We can't change history, but we can educate for the future. I'm Melissa Chester, and please be kind and stay enlightened. <laughs>